So this is Vimala's birthday party on March 14th, 2015 in Auckland. And we're going to be reading from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 8, text 28. Vedeshu tapasu chaiva daneshu yat punya palam pradistam Ajaitat Sarvam Midam Viditva Yogi Paramstanam Upaiti Chadyam. A person who accepts the path of devotional service is not bereft of the results derived from studying the Vedas, performing sacrifices. I'm gonna ask you what, what this was. Should I go back and read it again now that you know I'm gonna ask you? Okay. <laughs> A person who accepts the path of devotional service is not bereft of the results derived from studying the Vedas. <laughs> performing sacrifices, undergoing austerities, giving charity, or pursuing philosophical and fruitive activities. Simply by performing devotional service, he attains all these. At the end, he reaches the supreme eternal abode. Wow. Pretty good deal. At the end, you go back to Godhead, and in the meantime, you get the result of all... Okay, what were the things you get the result of? Studying the Vedas. Studying the Vedas. What else? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. What else? Austerities. What else? Fruit of activities. Fruit of activities. Philosophical speculation. All right. The purport's a little long, but I think it's very important for this topic of time and how to utilize our time. Because this is something I believe everybody, pretty much everybody that I know, devotee or non-devotee, how do I best use my time? How do I structure my time? How do I prioritize my time? So, purport. This verse is the summation of the seventh and eighth chapters, which particularly deal with Krishna consciousness and devotional service. One has to study the Vedas under the guidance. Now, there's a reason why Prabhupada is starting to talk about this one ashram, which he's not going to tell you until after he's finished talking about it. He's not going to tell you in the beginning why he brings this up. One has to study the Vedas under the guidance of the spiritual master and undergo many austerities and penances while living under his care. Now, if you can think of what this might have to do with the verse and why Prabhupada is bringing this up. A brahmachari has to live in the home of the spiritual master just like a servant, and he must beg alms from door to door and bring them to the spiritual master. He takes food only under the master's order, and if the master neglects to call the student for food that day, the student fasts. These are some of the Vedic principles for observing brahmacharya. After the student studies the Vedas under the master for some time, at least from age 5 to 20, he becomes a man of perfect character. Study of the Vedas is not meant for the recreation of armchair speculators, but for the formation of character. After this training, the brahmachari is allowed to enter into household life and marry. When he is a householder, he has to perform many sacrifices so that he may achieve further enlightenment. He must also give charity according to the country, time, and candidate, discriminating among charity and goodness in passion and ignorance as described in the Bhagavad Gita. Then, after retiring from household life, upon accepting the order of Vanaprastha, he undergoes severe penances, living in forests, dressing with tree bark. I haven't yet dressed in tree bark. <laughs> Not shaving, etc. By carrying out the orders of Brahmacharya, household life, Vanaprastha, and finally sannyas, one becomes elevated to the perfectional stage of life. Some of them elevated to the heavenly kingdoms, and when they become even more advanced, they are liberated in the spiritual sky, either in the impersonal Brahma Jyoti or in the Vaikuntha planets or Krishna Loka. This is the path outlined by Vedic literature. Just a little side note. It's interesting, Prabhupada says here, you do your Varnashram, you go to heaven, and from heaven you go to the spiritual world. 
Sometimes you hear devotees say you can only go to the spiritual world from the earth planet. So here it's quite clearly. The beauty of Krishna consciousness, however, is that by one stroke, by engaging in devotional service, one can surpass all the rituals of the different orders of life. And uh, we're going to stop there right after we rest. Okay, actually, we could, well, we'll skip a little bit. Um, if one is fortunate enough to understand Bhagavad Gita, especially these middle six chapters in the association of devotees, then his life at once become glorified beyond all penances, sacrifices, charities, speculations, etc. For one can achieve the results of all these activities simply by Krishna consciousness. So, when we're organizing our time, we have so many things to do. And all the things we have to do are in some of those categories. Correct? We have activities according to our ashram. So if we're students, we have to go to school. Of course, nowadays, you may also be going to school while you're grahasta. Right? Like you are. Mixing your ashrams here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be going to school when you're vanaprasta. You may be going to school when you're a sannyasi. Right? If sannyasis have gone back to school, vanaprastas have gone to school. But you may have activities as a student. Then you may have activities as a married person, taking care of your husband, your wife, your children, your home, etc., your food, your car, and all that kind of stuff. You may have activities as a vanaprasta, performing austerities and studying and teaching as a, as a sannyasi, traveling again and teaching. So we have all of those duties. Then we have our varna activities. So for those who are grahastas, varnas are only for grahastas. Right? Students, retired, and dead people don't have occupations. It's only for married people. So we have our activities of our varna that we're dealing with knowledge, or we're dealing with people, or we're dealing with natural resources and wealth, or we're dealing with beauty and function in the world. So we have some occupation that we're doing, and that's what we're doing during the day. And then we also have, our, of course, our activities of devotional service. And all of these activities can be divided into three main categories, Prabhupada says. Ordinary activities, desired activities, and emergency activities. So we have ordinary activities in our ashram. Maybe you're going to class, you're doing your homework, or you're changing your kids' diapers. Do you call them nappies or diapers? Nappies. You're changing their nappies, you know, you're driving your car, or you're studying the scriptures. And then you have your ordinary activities according to your varna, according to your work. And we have our ordinary activities also in bhakti. We have our 16 rounds, we have our taking care of the deities, we have our reading through the Prophet's books. And then you have your desired activities, also in all of these areas. Right? So maybe in addition to just cooking regular meals, you might like to make decorated cupcakes. Or you like to do embroidery on your curtains. Or you like to grow tomatoes in your, you call them tomatoes, right? like to grow tomatoes in your backyard. So that's not required. That's not your ordinary activities, but it's desired. Right? And then there's emergencies where you just can do anything and hopefully don't happen very often. And there's all of these activities. And my dear friends, as you probably noticed, we never have time for all of them. Right? It just doesn't happen. I I remember when we were uh, training to be school principals. Part of the training was they gave us what they called the in-basket activity. So they gave you a stack of papers, and each of these papers represented a job to be done. 
and you'd start doing a job and then you'd come to a paper where, you know, there was a, a fight out in the playground or something like that. And you'd have to go and do that. And, you know, you, you started out with your plan for the day and you never finished it. And I, I remember when I had a physical inbox uh, long before we did a whole lot of stuff on computers. So I had, you know, a little tray. And in my tray, I had the things that I was doing. And periodically, I'd go through the whole tray. You know, I'd take everything out of the tray and I'd go through everything and there'd always be something in there that had expired. You know, always. I'd find something in there that was just too late to do. And I would just have to throw it away. Right? Uh, so we, we just never get to everything. It's not possible. You know, on my phone, I have a little list of things to do. And every once in a while, I look at them and I say, you know, this thing I'm probably just not ever going to do. I'm not willing to take it off my list. <laughs> and then you have other people asking you to do things as if you don't have enough on your own list to do. And then you have other people coming. At least with me, it's like, or really, can you write a book about Varnapasta women? Can you, can you write a book about taking care of babies? Can you write a book about Varnashram? Can you write, I mean, I have a whole list of books that other people want me to write. You know? <laughs> can, you, can you go to this temple and do this and this temple? And there's no way in one lifetime. It just, it's just impossible. You know, it's completely impossible to do all of these things and go to all of these places. Right? And, and I think most of us have lives like that, that if at the end of a day, when we go to sleep, we say, I actually got done everything I wanted to do today, and I had an extra hour, and I had no idea what to do with myself. You know, that, that doesn't happen very often. And of course, the irony is that it's supposed to be that we have a life of time savers. You know, it's supposed to be like that. Uh, what's interesting is most of our time savers have made us busier. I mean, it used to be people had secretaries. Now you're generally your own secretary. So uh, one, uh, one very nice devotee, Radhika Raman, Aruda's son, married a village girl from India. And when they got married in India, she said, I definitely want to have at least 15 children. And he said, fine, no problem. You know, and after she lived in America for a year, she said, I don't think I can have 15 children in America. And he said, why not? She said, because you have no servants here. She said, you have washers and dryers, but I've got to sort out the clothes, and I've got to put them in, and I've got to take them out. And I've got, She said, in India, we have a servant, and you just give the servant the laundry, and the servant does all the washing and all the ironing and all the folding and puts everything away. You know, so we have all of these so-called time savers. We have our washing machines. Maybe you even have a dishwasher. You know, we have our little organizers on our phone and our computers, but it's simply we simply end up having more work to do, right? Or, or I remember before email, I used to take care of all my correspondence in two hours a week. Every Saturday from 2 to 4 was correspondence day, and I sat down with the computer, you know, and, and printed things out and put them in envelopes and put stamps on them and put them in the mailbox. And now, if I can get all my correspondence done in two hours a day, I consider myself lucky. So I think it's very ironic that at the present time, we're supposed to be in a situation where all of our technology is freeing us to have more leisure time. But uh, it, it hasn't actually happened that way. In fact, we tend to be much busier and, and have a lot more to do than we had before. And then on top of this... We want to try to be devotees. 
you know, I, I know of one devotee who's initiated and stopped chanting his 16 rounds. And I said, Prabhu, why don't you chant your rounds? And he said, it became another thing I had to get done. It became something, it became another job to do. And I just felt like, you know, with my, my occupation, my wife, my kids, my home, you know, my hobbies, I had enough jobs to do, and it was just simply stress. So what are we going to do about this? So I would suggest, first of all, that we look at things philosophically. So that shouldn't be surprising if you know me, that first of all, I'd say I think we should look at things philosophically. And, and ask ourselves, what's really important? And as you get older, those of you who are very young, we're not going to relate to this very well, but as you get older, this gets more and more and more in focus. It starts becoming more and more and more clear that there is absolutely no way that by the time I die, I'll have gotten everything done I wanted to do in this life. You know, it, it's just not going to happen. And I'm probably not going to get everything done in a day. And, and, and you start thinking a little differently and deciding what's really important. You know, one of my friends recently on Facebook posted something, what song do you want them to play at your funeral? And I, I actually thought about this because I went to the funeral of a god sister some years ago in London, and they were playing some totally mundane Italian opera song at the funeral. And I remember thinking, gosh, I hope nobody does this at my funeral. And I remember the next day thinking, well, what do I want them to play at my funeral? And two days later, I thought, you know, I really don't care when anybody plays at my funeral because I won't be there. And it really just doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. You know, that we realize that, that the things in this life we think are so important. You know, if we could go back five years in time and look at what our to-do list was five years ago, and the things we didn't get done, probably we wouldn't care. You know, so many of the things that we thought were really, really important five years ago, ten years ago, or this, I, I remember really thinking about this one time when I'd gotten in a really big argument with another devotee. And a few years later, I remembered that we got in a big argument, and I remembered where we were, but I couldn't remember the topic of the argument. <laughs> And it was so important that we argued about it. It was, it was a very emotional argument. And five years later, it wasn't important at all. And the same with all the things, I've got to do this today, I have to do this today, and I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. And often a week later, they're not important. A week later, you can't even remember what they are. And most of us, if we were to sit down with someone who really cares about us and say, Please listen to all the important things I did today. Would they be interested? Could you find anybody? If you made a list of all the important things you did that day, would anybody care? Right? Probably not. And I always give the example, when we die, what do we get? Like two sentences in the newspaper? You know, so-and-so died, their funeral will be at such-and-such such place at 2 o'clock. They're survived by this person, this person, and this person. That's all they say, right? If you're a really, 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 really big person, I remember my father was a very famous person. He got five paragraphs in the New York Times. You know, 
on, what is it to just pick, you know, the highlights of your life? What did you do for your occupation? How many kids did you have? Just a few key things. It didn't pick up all the minutia of life. So when we're choosing what to do, why don't we choose, first of all, what's really important. And Krishna says here that if we choose devotional service, it includes everything else. You know, what we tend to do, I think in general, and Prabhupada says particularly that the householders tend to do this, is he said particularly householders, they tend to think that their household work is primary and their spiritual work is secondary. You know, first let's get everything else done, and then I'll read Prabhupada's books. First let me get everything else done, and then I'll chant Hare Krishna. First let me get everything else done, and then if I have time I'll worship my deities. You know, that, that's, that's generally how we tend to prioritize. Now, of course, there's things that one obviously has to get done. One has to eat, one has to feed one's children, one has to pay the bills. You know, where there'll be some immediate consequences if they don't get done. But the most important thing that we want to do is something that's eternal and something that really includes everything else. So why would devotional service include everything else, do you think? Prabhupada says one stroke. Why if we do devotional services that include everything else? Anyone have any idea? Yeah? Could a factor be that it's uh, about the consciousness in which you do everything? Okay. Uh, so that could be one aspect of it. All right, so why would the consciousness in which you do it? In other words, you're doing everything else, but you're changing your consciousness. Is that what you mean by it includes everything else? So in other words, I'm studying philosophy, but in a different consciousness, and I'm going to a job, but in a different consciousness? Doing everything to please Krishna, or in a way which is pleasing to Krishna, and therefore it's bhakti, and therefore it's devotional service. Oh, I like that. Okay. So what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that when you're doing devotional service, you're still going to your job, and you're still cooking, and you're still taking care of your family, and you're still doing all that, but it's no longer fruit of activity, and it's no longer philosophical speculation. It's become bhakti. So that's one very nice explanation, that if I'm putting bhakti first, as part of pleasing Krishna, I'm going to take care of the things that Krishna has given me to do. How else would be if I did bhakti, it includes everything else. Well, connected with that, maybe it's pretty much the same. If I see that whatever I have to do, I'm doing it for Krishna, ultimately that's the goal, even though it may seem like... (laughs) Then that... Then... I feel like, wow, that's that's valuable. I don't have to wait to become pure devotee or whatever, become renounced. Yes. I'm doing everything for Krishna. Okay, very nice. Very nice. Some other thoughts on why? Yes. Mm, how does that work, though? How does that? You're still trying to work that out. Because, you know, I mean, it, what that could mean is you're sitting down in your living room having a kirtan, and your wife says, wait a minute, the roof is leaking. And you say, but I'm watering the roof. And that ought to take care of the roof. Someone else is going to walk the roof. Yes. Secondary activities that support it with if you can work first, that is. Otherwise, the secondary activities take over the primary Oh, that's, uh, that's very, very nice also. That if you put bhakti first, those secondary activities become bhakti. Like Prabhupada talked about the hot iron rod and the fire, and since most of us don't hang around blacksmiths very much. I think often about the uh, pot on the fire. So you put the pot on the fire, 
we all have pots on fires, yes? So, and then the pot gets hot because it's on the fire. So that when you have the fire of bhakti, all the other things you're doing in connection with bhakti become bhakti. Any other senses? Yes? Oh, that's also very nice. Oh, very nice. Yes. Well, Krishna's time, so um, if you focus on chanting and take the time to read, somehow I seem to have more time in the day. I experience when I chant my Gayatri thinking about, I've got to do this really quickly so I can get to the next one. It seems to take me longer than when I'm just actually am present and really that's also very interesting so that when you really give that focus to your bhakti then it seems that it is available to do everything and I, I think that we've experienced that if you give your focus to your bhakti that there's time to do everything that's important there doesn't tend to be as much time to do things that's not important but why do we want to do things that are not important anyway it is true that if you focus on bhakti, you'll probably lose some time to do things that are stupid and useless. That is, that is true. <laughs> Any other thoughts on why when you do bhakti, everything else is included? Yeah. Yes. See, okay, so this is this is. Uh, it's nice that a number of people here have brought this up from all different angles. So it's not that you stop doing anything else, but they become bhakti. So everything's included in that sense. Mm. Krishna is the uh, fulfiller of all desires, and the person that's given the results of all forms of activity. So, um, so that could be another aspect of. of so that. you get, and and that that's such a beautiful thing because why are we doing all these other things? In one sense, we're not really doing them because we have to, because it says in the Bhagavatam these are self-created duties. Sorry about that. But actually, that's a fact. These are self-created duties. Because we want to have a house, therefore we have to maintain the house. Do you follow what I'm saying? You know, because we have various desires, then we have different activities that then we manifest to fulfill those desires. Sorry to bring that up. But <laughs> that, that's the reality of it. And why we're doing everything... I just love what Prabhupada says in Nectar Devotion that we're, we're being driven by a desire for rasa. We want to enjoy something. Prabhupada says, why does a man work so hard for his family? Because there's a certain rasa. Right? You're getting a, some certain combination of taste with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your home, with your occupation. And who is Krishna? Akila Rasa Mrita Murti. He's the form of all rasas. So what happens when I really connect with Krishna is I get, this is what happened to Dhruva Maharaj. You know, he like, I want this, I want this. And he got Krishna and he said, wait a minute. I know I have everything. So everything that we want to achieve, right, everything we want to achieve. One of the devotees was talking to me the other day, what I really want in my life is freedom. Isn't there freedom in bhakti? It's in bhakti you find real freedom. You know, even if one wants 
Uh, someone else was telling me, I really want security. In bhakti, isn't there security? Or someone else says, I really want love. In bhakti, isn't there love? I really want meaning. So all the things for which we are doing everything else. You know, why are we having a house? Why are we having a car? Why are we having a job? Why are we having a spouse? Why are we having children? Why are we doing all these things? We're doing them because we're looking for some rasa. But it's all there in Krishna. And then you might say, oh, but if I get everything in Krishna, then I'll probably become irresponsible and I'll stop doing these things. Right? This is the fear. If I get all my, all my needs and all my desires fulfilled in Krishna, then will I stop taking care of anything else? I'll become an irresponsible person. I'll say, I, you know, I'll go to Krishna and under Prabhu and I'll say, Prabhu, I'm getting all my needs met by chanting Hare Krishna, so I'm not going to come in and teach my class today. Right? Or you say to your husband, Prabhu, you know, Krishna's now my husband and he's meeting all of my needs and so, sorry, you know, I'm not cooking lasagna tonight. <laughs> And, and we think like this, you know, that then, then I won't take care of everything else. But the beauty is, if all your needs are met in Krishna, then guess what happens? This incredible, wonderful thing happens. You start doing everything not because you have to, but because you choose to. You stop serving your husband because it's your dharma to be a good wife, but because you're choosing to do that service for Krishna. You don't need to. All your desires are met in Krishna. You don't need anything from this man. You're just giving freely to please Krishna. You're not taking care of your kid because that way I'll be a good father and a good mother. And I can be happy with myself, but I'm... No. All that's already met in Krishna. And one becomes completely free. And then one can choose how one spends one's time. One no longer feels forced and obligated, as Krishna says early in the Bhagavad Gita, that such a person has no need to do their duty and no need to stop doing their duty. They have no need to depend on any other living being. Everything becomes individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. And then you can actually choose what you want to prioritize. Wouldn't that be nice? If you never had to do anything anymore, you know, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this, and oh, at least let me get this out of the way, and when I get this out of the way, then I'll be able to do what I really like, and you never, by the time you get to do what you really like, it's 10 o'clock at night. And then you're too tired to do what you really like. Right? Like these guys who think, well, I'm going to work hard, and then I'll, when I'm old, I'll retire, and then I can do what I really like. And by the time you're old and retire, you're too old to do what you really like. Right? Why not be doing what we really like now? Why not be able to say, I'm choosing to do this freely, not to meet any of my needs because all my needs are already met. I'm choosing to do this simply to make Krishna happy. Simply is my relationship with Krishna. Krishna has given me this husband, this wife, this child, this house. It's Krishna's house. It's Krishna's car. And, you know, wow, he's meeting all of my needs. Don't I want to make him smile? He's given me everything, unlimitedly. Wouldn't I want to make him smile? And then we decide what to do by what would make him smile. And it's all individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. And then if there's some, you know, sometimes things don't get done, well, things don't get done. Who cares anyway? I mean, really seriously. We're not going to care 
our family member, nobody's going to care. Frankly, any of us died tomorrow, the whole world would go on. Somebody might be a little upset for a little while, and then everything would just go on. Yes? The world wouldn't stop. Okay, Dharma Sethu's died, now we have to stop the world. Close the temple, close the whole country of New Zealand. So this is the secret to how to manage time. The secret to how to manage time is to put Krishna first, not, 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 my dear friends, in a ritualistic way, although that's better than nothing. Better than nothing is to chant my rounds because it's my job, to read Prabhupada's books because it's my job and it's one of my jobs. That's better than nothing. It's something. But better is to put Krishna first in a very real and deep way. That my relationship with Krishna is first because Krishna is a Kilarasamrita Murti. He's the source of everything. He's where I, he's everything to me. All of my needs are going to be perfectly, totally fulfilled simply by making him happy. And I'm not even going to him to meet my needs. I'm going to him just to make him happy, and he naturally meets all of my needs. Like working for a really good company, where you work for the company because you're inspired about their mission. And because they're a really good company, they naturally pay you a salary, they naturally give you a desk, they naturally give you a computer, they naturally give you vacations, and you don't even have to think about it. You're not going there for the salary or the vacations, you're going there because you're inspired and they take care of you. So like that. And then when that's there, everything naturally flows from that. And one has so much more energy, like you were saying, more time, more energy even. One, then one doesn't feel tired and exhausted and worn out and battered and like, you know, a sugar cane and a sugar cane juicing machine. Okay, I'm giving this piece to my wife and this piece to this kid and this piece to this kid and this piece to the temple and this piece to the job and now I'm exhausted. <laughs> but one gets full with Krishna. It's just full and overflowing with Krishna. And then what you're giving to the wife, the husband, the job, the this, you're not giving your own energy. You're not giving your own energy. You simply become a conduit for Krishna's energy. And then if some days, if some days you're on the battlefield like Arjuna and you're having to fight ten enemies at once from ten different directions, or like Bhishma, it says he fought with thousands of men on thousands of battlefields and could speak on thousands of subjects with thousands of meanings. You're doing it as Krishna's instrument. And whether it's gain or loss, victory or defeat, honor or dishonor, it doesn't really matter. It's all fun in the doing. So this is really the way one manages time, and we could talk about specific time management techniques. But my time management techniques may not be yours. They might not work for you, but I'd rather talk about the principle. Put Krishna first in a very real way, in a very deep way, in a very personal way, in a very relationship way, so that you feel full. And if you're not feeling full, there's something wrong with how you're putting Krishna first. Put Krishna first so that you feel full, so that you feel satisfied. And then everything else is just an outpouring of that. And then, of course, the body still needs to sleep. 
even the Goswamis would sleep a couple hours a day. <laughs> you know, the body still needs to eat. You can't, uh, we don't have a spiritual body. But then one naturally does everything voluntarily without anxiety that I have to do this and I have to do that. Without feeling that I'm such an important person and all the things that I'm doing are so important. Without feeling that all these people are depending on me. Uh, no, everybody's depending on Krishna. And I'm just acting as his instrument. And then the criteria for what I should do simply is what would make Krishna smile the most? What would make Krishna smile the most? What has Krishna asked me to do to make him smile? One no longer thinks, what do I need to do in order to fulfill my needs because they're already getting filled. So I hope I didn't go too long. And our hosts and hostess with the mostess are not here, so I don't know if I'm supposed to just stop or if I'm supposed to have a discussion. I'll just find out. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, so, um... I was thinking about how to ask, ask this question, uh, and maybe this is the easiest way. Um, for some, uh, how do you have a deep and meaningful relationship with Krishna if your bhakti is not on the level where you actually know Krishna in terms of mm. relationship with Krishna? To whatever extent you know him. Mm. Take, take whatever, whatever you, you know something about Krishna. I mean, at least you read about him, right? You've seen his deity, you've seen a painting, and you've read about him. So you know something about Krishna. And there must be something about Krishna that intrigues you, or you wouldn't be sitting here with clay on your face and wooden beads around your neck, right? So there's got to be something. Take that something, whatever it is. If I was to take the spark, fan it, fan it, fan it. So don't look at what's not there, look at what's there. I mean, you can lament what's not there if it's a sweet lamentation, but not if it's a depressing lamentation. But whatever's there, any anything, Krishna's philosophy, Krishna's form, Krishna's pastimes, anything. And okay, you know, is is there some? I mean, is there some pastime that you really like to, to see or be in? Can you think of any lila like that that like you really like to see? Yeah, I can think of. Okay, there you go. Well, I mean, I'd really like to see Arjuna killing Karna. I'd really, I'd really like to see the Arjuna-Karna battle. It's something I'd really, I'd, I'd really like to witness that. So whatever, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see Krishna kidnapping Rukmini. That would be a lot of fun. And he just kind of casually comes up. You know, all these, all these princes and kings are there. And they're falling off their horses and elephants because Rukmini is so beautiful. And they're all thinking, oh, she's for me, which is ridiculous because she was supposed to marry Shishupal, for goodness sakes. You know, and Krishna just comes and takes her very casually, puts her on the chariot. And she's driving. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to see that? And not just to see that, but to be there. So, whatever, find, find that, find the spark. Something. Yes. Could you say something about how we, we put blockages in our relationship with Krishna? Because I think sometimes we tell ourselves that no, I can't connect with Krishna because I'm not ready. Or, I'm not worthy of Krishna's mercy. So many things we tell ourselves, mm. but maybe they're not actually true. I don't think we're telling that to ourselves. I think that there's somebody named Durga Devi who's telling that to us. 
she's, she's saying to us, you know, you're not good enough, you're not ready. You know, by the way, we'll never think we're good enough and we're ready. We, we don't see in the Shastra that the devotee comes to the point where they say, oh, now I'm good enough and I'm pure enough and I'm ready and now I'm going to go meet Krishna. We don't, we don't find this. We find that when, when Krishna shows himself to the devotee, the devotee always responds with, you know, I'm not worthy. How can I be, how can you ever be worthy? You know? And Krishna wants to see us. I mean, you want to see your kids even if they've just played in the mud. You don't say, well, I don't, I don't want to see you anymore. You may tell them to take a bath, but, you know, you don't disown them. Can I say something about that? Yeah, of course. I think one way to think about it, if you haven't mentioned already, is to think, well, Krishna sees me as worthy. In Krishna's eyes, and Prabhupada's eyes, I am worthy. They love me. Yes. Even I do I'll make a little endeavor. Yes. I mean, Krishna always wants to be with us. His question is, do we want to be with him? That's really what it is. Prabhupada says Krishna is much more anxious to be with us than we are to be with him. And I don't think even it's, I don't even know if they even think like that. I mean, do you think, I was reading a story once about this police chief who was uh, investigating a serial killer and turned out to be his own son. You know, but he didn't feel, I'm not going to visit my son in prison. I mean, he was saying, as a police chief, I'm happy he's in prison. As a father, I'm devastated. He said, but I still went to prison and visited him. I didn't, I didn't say to him, well, because, you know, you've killed ten people, I, you're not my son anymore. Well, I mean, Krishna's in our heart, right? Just wondering, how does the mode of goodness function in Krishna consciousness? It's supposed to support our attraction to Krishna and that platform and stepping stone. So... How does mother goodness, because we hear that mother goodness is difficult in the beginning and sweet in the end, how, does it, how do we get over that difficulty of having a mother goodness life? Sometimes it's hard. Mm. I, think, I think it's by experience that the, in the, it's only in the mode of goodness that you're going to experience any happiness materially, really. In the mode of ignorance, there's no happiness at all. I mean, there's some sense that, you know, I'm really bad in getting away with it. So there's, there's some happiness like that. Kind of the happiness little kids have when they turn over the trash bin. You know, there's that kind of happiness in the mode of ignorance. And in the mode of passion, there's a, there's a little happiness just physically. There's some sense gratification of the, of the body in the mode of passion. And in the mode of passion, there's some mental concoction of happiness. Here is my beautiful spouse and children and house and car and job. See how happy I am. But only in the mode of goodness is there some real, something that's real. Because you're starting to, to touch something that's spiritual. So in the mode of goodness, you get internal <coughs> happiness. Ignorance and passion is all external. Mode of ignorance, happiness is external through nasty things. Mode of passion is external through pious things. But it's all external. It's just the body and mind, which isn't me. So in the mode of goodness, that's, you know, the feeling you get when you did something nice for somebody and nobody else even knows about it and nobody thanks you and you just feel good inside. You just have this, this sense inside, wow, I really did something good. I, I did the right thing. And, you know, same like if you forgive somebody 
you know, who, who really did something awful to you. And again, you know, nobody may know it. That's fine. Nobody may know about it, and nobody may say anything to you. You know, it, you don't get any external reward, but just that feeling of relief you get that you're not carrying this around anymore, that inner feeling of peace. So I think the mode of goodness is it, you have to have that experience. You have to try it sometimes, and see, you know, try being equipoised and try being forgiving and try being merciful. Just for the sake of doing it, not for the sake of getting some external thing. Or we can say just for the sake of how it makes you feel inside. And from that platform, you start doing it for how it makes Krishna feel instead of for how it makes you feel. So, because again, in ignorance and passion, I'm doing things for what they're going to give me on the bodily and mental platform. What they're going to give me in the accolades of society. And in the mode of goodness, I'm really trying to please the self. But it's not spiritual because I'm still trying to please the self separately from Krishna. And the mode of goodness is limited. But in bhakti, I'm trying to please the self of the self. So then you can think, wow, if it's so nice trying to please the self instead of the body and the mind and the public and whatever, how incredible would it be to please Krishna? But I, I think it has to be a prachaksha. It has to, you have to experience it. You know, you just... And it's, again, it's not that hard. We've all experienced. I, I think it's a rare person who's never experienced any of the mode of goodness. You'd, you'd really have to be very, 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 very much in Tamagun to never have had any experience in your life of the mode of goodness. It's, it's that inner, like, like this. It's like this. Ah. Uh, it's the centered, balanced, harmony, peace, detached, free, benevolent, inner, warm, fuzzy. Now, that's a lot more satisfying than... I gotta get this car, I gotta get this house, I gotta get you know, what does motor passion feel like? Motor passion feels like And motor ignorance is like And this person What about me? Is that alright? But don't get stuck in sattva either, yeah? Yeah, because hearing is one of the nine processes of devotional service. So yeah, you just hear something about Krishna. That is bhakti. Therefore, you can experience the, ple- the presence of Krishna just by hearing that. Just by hearing some knowledge. Yes, definitely. Even if we're not experiencing like some, something from here, like some heartful... Oh, no, it should resonate. There should be something. That there's a... There's a the, 
really hearing about Krishna, it, it should stir you in some way. Not official hearing. You can think about how nice Krishna is that even though I'm not worthy, he loves me anyway. Even though I'm not ready, he comes anyway. And don't tell him to leave. You know, sometimes you pop into someone's house unannounced and they go, what's really funny? I'll tell you what's really, really funny. I once went to a devotee's house. She knew I was coming anyway. I once went to her house and I walked in the door and she said, oh, Ermila, look at all the mess. Don't do that. Because as soon as you say to someone, look at all the mess, what do they do? They look at the mess. She was giving me a, it was an imperative sentence, right? All of you teachers. He says, look at the mess. So immediately, I, as being very obedient, I started looking for a mess. Actually, it wasn't a very messy house, but I started looking around. Where is the mess? So better if she just said, oh, welcome to my home. So I think when, when, when Krishna manifests to us in any way, even a little, little tiny bit, we don't want to say, oh, Krishna, look at all the mess. He's like, I didn't come here to look at the mess. I came here to spend time with you. But there's so much mess. No, 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 don't come in, Krishna. My house is too messy. I mean, would you really say that? If Krishna came to your door and said, I'm coming in, would you really say? Yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully we'd say, Krishna! (laughs) Who cares? So probably we should end now. Has that been 10 minutes? Yes, exactly. Shubhra Prabhupada Kija.